Well, one drizzly afternoon in January of 2015, Washington, D.C.'s newest group held its first meeting, the inaugural meeting of the Quitters Club. Their tagline, let's give up on our dreams together. The hodgepodge group of strangers were drawn together by the same invitation. Most of us have something special we'd like to do with our lives, but at the Quitters Club, we can help each other stomp out the brush fires set in our hearts and just get on with our lives. Founder Justin Cannon had previously quit all sorts of things, filmmaking, music, graphic design, and he was living a tortured life between the rock of ambition and the hard place of doubt. And the constant battle left him despondent. One day, in a fit of despair, Cannon mentioned to another struggling friend in D.C., he said, you know, we should have a group where people can give up on their dreams. But what started kind of as a self-deprecating joke ended up becoming a reality. And a few days later, he posted a notice online for this new group. And he thought, you know, maybe it'll just be me and my buddy. And lo and behold, before 48 hours were up, 35 people in the area signed up. And for their first meeting, one after another expressed their dreams and their inability to make progress. Something surprising happened in this group of people that were ready to give up. When they came together, they ended up encouraging each other to push on, to persevere. Here we are at the Quitters Club, one attendee mused, and we're all encouraging each other to keep on going. Now folks, I want to welcome you to church this morning, which is our very own Quitters Club. Because when we come together as a church, we're coming together to... Quit trying to be our own gods. To stop being self-sufficient and say, I can do this. We come together and admit we're not self-made people. We're not sufficient to save ourselves. We're not immune to the suffering and death of this world. And even though we want to be, and maybe sometimes pretend like we are, we're not sinless nor perfect. Instead, we come together as a church to encourage each other to quit with our self-sufficiency and start persevering together by the power and wisdom through worship of Jesus Christ, our Creator and Redeemer, who is glorified with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Because only in the person of Jesus, by the Spirit's power and for the Father's glory, may we persevere through this very difficult life, and on until the end. And so everything that Paul has written about in this letter, the infinite mysteries of the person and work of Jesus Christ, our God and our King, the inscrutable meaning of the suffering that we go through on a daily basis, and the beauty of our truly new and rehumanized Uh, identity as a community of image bearers of Christ. All of that beautiful and complex theology over which fountains of ink have been spilled writing about in the past 2,000 years. All of that stuff has been written for ordinary Christians like you and me. All of what we've read throughout the book of Colossians, in fact, all that we read in Scripture is meant for normal, 
practical, day-in and day-out Christian living. See, this is the extraordinary thing. Paul isn't writing to the ancient scholars and CEOs or presidents of his day. He's writing to us, normal folks. Us, the people of God. So as ordinary people of God ourselves, what can we learn about these names that Paul names here? By the way, Deborah, wonderful job. What a horrible thing I assigned for you to read this morning. But I did it because I know you would do it so well, so thank you, and you did a wonderful job. My apologies to you, though. Paul names a bunch of people here that have been utterly lost to history. We may know a little bit about them from other books of the Bible, but really everything we know is from there, and it's really only their names that we know. And yet Paul looks at these people as the foundational building blocks upon which the kingdom of God is built out in this world. Ordinary citizens of God's coming kingdom, just like you and just like me. So what can we, as we look at the close of Colossians together, what can we ordinary people of Maranatha walk away with? Well, let's look at our passage together this morning. Now one thing I think that is rather remarkable about this passage, again, is that none of these names or their accomplishments stand on their own. In other words, Paul mentions all these people together, collectively. Paul doesn't make a big deal about any single person, nor himself, in these letters. But he does make a big deal out of all of what they're doing together. Now, Pastor Tom Wright uses an analogy of a thread here. It's a biblical one. It's an Old Testament analogy. But he says a single thread by itself is completely vulnerable. It's easy to just snap it right in half. But you know what happens when you start combining and weaving many threads together? Then you get a piece of fabric that you can't tear apart with your bare hands. No matter how much you pull, it's strong, it's durable, it's not easily torn, and... It functions for a collective purpose. Folks, that is what's happening here as Paul is weaving together all these old Greek and Hebrew names of people we know nothing about. It's nothing extraordinary about any single one of them, but when they're weaved together, when their lives and stories and gifts as individuals are woven together, we see a tapestry of God's glory and grace formed by very ordinary people. While Paul seemingly languishes in prison chains, he names Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nympha, and Archippus, all of whom have their own Christian lives, their own talents and gifts and the Spirit, their own journeys of faith, their own joys and sorrows, their own victories and defeat. But in Jesus, they come together to, com- to complete this covering that wraps the Apostle up and their love, even when he's freezing to death in prison chains. 
Folks, this is exactly what it means to be the church. This is what it means for us, Maranatha, to be the people of God. There are no lone rangers here. There is no supermen or superwomen here. There is only us collectively. And together, God has called us, this small tapestry, to serve Christ and serve this world. Every person that is here today is here for a purpose. God has woven all of us together for a reason. And in verses 7-9, through let's just get right into the passage here. How does Paul commend the people of God in his own day for what they've done? Well, let's look. He begins by naming two men, Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, both of them share the same description. Paul calls both of them faithful and dearly beloved brothers. They both share the same duties. They are to tell the Colossian church news about Paul. Both of them are supposed to do that. He says, they'll tell you what's going on with me here. And both of them share the same demographic. Now, they're both Greeks, as it turns out. Those are Greek names. But one is uh, uh, a minister to the Colossians, Tychicus. We see Paul say that explicitly. And one's a member of the congregation. That he, belong, he belongs to you, is what Paul says for Onesimus. So one is maybe a leader and one is a layperson, but they're serving the same duty. Paul doesn't hierarchalize. He says, Tychicus is going to come to you and, and Onesimus is going to wash his feet. And No, they're both going to serve and minister together. And every way these men are equals, which makes the fact that Tychicus, according to church tradition, went on to be a bishop or a a head pastor of churches in that region. And Onesimus, who we read in the book of Philemon, is a runaway slave. That makes it all the more remarkable. Here's one man of great social standing. He goes to Brooks Brothers to get his suits to preach in. That's Tychicus. And here's Onesimus, who's born in poverty, has never had a dime to his name, and is bound to to serve the house of Philemon. And here they are, held up, esteemed by Paul as utterly equal. Isn't that wonderful how the Gospel elevates the lowly, and it humbles the proud. There's no self-sufficiency. No single thread can cut it. We're all woven together. All of us serve an equal purpose. See, Paul was not kidding around about the equal status and dignity of God's people as new creations. When he said, wives, respect your husbands, Husbands, love your wives. He was giving both men and women equal status to serve one another and to glorify Christ. Parents, be good to your children. Don't exasperate them. Children, obey your parents. Parents, just because they have a 401k and children because they're in pre-k doesn't mean that they're one's better than the other. No, in the eyes of our Lord Jesus. Let the little children come to me. In fact, you want to know what uh, uh, somebody that receives the kingdom of heaven look like? 
You don't go to Tychicus. You go to little Tychicus Jr. who can't even write his, I don't know what the letters would be, he can't even write his little chi's or rows in the right way. He turns them around. Or masters and slaves. See, Paul says, masters, you have a master in heaven. Don't kid yourself because you have a little jingle in your pocket. You think you're better than the poor man that works for you. No, none of that. The first will be last, and the last will be first in the kingdom of heaven. See, the gospel has an equalizing effect on all people. In Ephesians 2.11, we read about how God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. See, we love to put up dividing walls. Americans love to put up dividing walls. Oh, well, we don't live in that, we don't live on that side of town. Or, oh, we don't go to those people over there. Oh, oh, we don't vote that way. Or, oh, we'd never be caught dead in that area. God tears all that stuff down. He tore down everything that would divide us. Nationality, ethnicity, gender, culture, class. All the ways that we sinful human beings divide one another up and prioritize. These are the important people. These are the ones that can be forgotten. And the kingdom of heaven were all equal sinners at the foot of the cross. And all redeemed co-heirs with Christ. All of us. What replaces our old prejudices and biases is a heart that loves to serve everyone. Putting our brothers and sisters even before ourselves. That's what we see just with Tychicus and Onesimus. Well, let's keep going. Let's look at Verses 10 and 11, Paul names three other men here. But they're a little bit different than the men we've read. He calls these men three men of circumcision, which just simply suggests that they were Jewish, just like he was. That they had the same cultural, national background. That they they have always had the law on the Old Testament. Tychicus and Onesimus, they're a bunch of pagan converts. They're Gentiles. They don't know anything about Sabbath. They don't know anything about kosher. Paul lifts Tychicus and Onesimus to be equals with these three men that he names. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. Who, by the way, his name is Jesus. Or Yeshua, as the Hebrew would be called. Here these are men like Paul, Jewish people. And as the early church spread and grew, it became increasingly more diverse, especially as it added Gentile people like us of every kind of ethnic, national, social, and religious background. Here, these, here are a, a collective of just these five men that have been named that are all so different from one another that before Jesus, they would have been at each other's throats. But in Jesus doesn't matter if they're Jew or Greek, slave or free. All of them have a place as a thread in the great tapestry of God's redemptive history. Now sometimes, I think, we modern Christians can forget that our Christian faith, that our church is not simply a Gentile faith. It's one rooted deeply in the Jewish people and their Old Testament Bible. Paul tells us towards the end of Romans, he said, lest you get too cocky, 
Gentiles and the church of Rome. You were the wild shoot out there, ready for nothing but fire. But God grafted you in to the domesticated olive tree. If you didn't have Israel and the Old Testament and Jesus the Messiah, you would have nothing. You're not where it starts. Jesus and his people are where it starts. We as Gentiles have been fortunate that God in his grace loved Gentile sinners like us. We'll get into that a little bit in Amos 9 tonight. I'll give you a little preview of what we'll be talking about in our Bible study. But the, the Israelites think, we're the chosen people of God. Nothing can ever happen to us. And God says, Israel, do you think the Cushites of Ethiopia, do you think the, the black Africans, do you think I don't love them just as much as I love you? I led the Philistines out of exile. I led the Arameans through their own exodus. Israel forgot, too, that God chose Israel so that Israel could bring the good news of the gospel to all nations. God loves every nation. It can be the blackest, brownest, or whitest nation on this planet. He loves them all equally because they all bear the image of Christ as we do. So let's not forget, Gentile Christians, that we are the foreign transplant, not the Jewish people. Now, we might even say, and this is, I believe, the truth, that Christianity is the logical conclusion of the Jewish faith. What it is, Christianity is simply understanding what the Old Testament by the Spirit's guiding was about all along. It was ultimately about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King. He's the prophet and priest. He's the creator and redeemer. He's the temple and the Sabbath. And He is the one true and only God. And how wonderful, folks, for Paul then, although he's kinsman to these three people, ethnically, invites all people who bear the name of Jesus into His company. We ought to be the exact same way as Christians. Anybody that comes in the name of Jesus, Jesus reminded, I think it's in Luke and Mark, John of this. John goes out and sees, oh, there's people prophesying in the name of Jesus. But Jesus, they're not with us. Should we call fire from heaven down on these people? Let's call fire down from heaven on the Presbyterians. Let's call fire from heaven down on the Eastern Orthodox. Jesus says, they who go in my name surely will not forget it soon. Anybody that offers a cup of water in my name will not soon forget it. If they're not against us, they're with us. See, Jesus is much more tolerant of Christians than we are of Christians. Thank God. We're not very tolerant of each other in this church sometimes. But the Lord Jesus is very tolerant to us. So folks, remember, they don't have to be just like you for Jesus to love them and hold them in great esteem and value. And for whom Christ died, who are we to condemn? We praise the Lord wherever He's doing His work. Even if He's doing it 
in a Lutheran church. Hard to believe. Or a Catholic church. Goodness gracious, those people. I have my problems with them. But it's incredible to me as we read this Old Testament how we have no leg to stand on when it comes for us putting down anybody that bears the name of Jesus. Our responsibility in this day and age, and a day and age where we want to divide over politics, over culture, over every silly thing, our responsibility in this day and age is to love and pray for everybody that bears the name of Jesus. Let them and their life be between God and them, not you and them. Nobody in this room is the Holy Spirit. Not a single one of us. So you let the Holy Spirit do the convicting of other people. You bless them. You pray for them. You outdo them and honor. That's what the church is called to do. He goes on. He talks about Aristarchus here, who shares prison chains with him. And he talks about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and the writer of the Gospel. And this man, Justice, Jesus or Yeshua, all of them Paul calls fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they may have different roles, different status, different appearances, but they all bring comfort to Paul. That's how we ought to be as Christians too. We ought to bring comfort to one another. We may have different jobs, live in different places, but wherever we are, we ought to be a comfort to one another. As Jesus comforts us. Paul continues on and mentions in verse 12, he mentions Epaphras, who he mentioned at the beginning of the letter. And I know that's been several months ago, so we'll review in verse 12 who this Epaphras character is. Well, he's a convert to the faith. Probably when he heard Paul preaching in another city, a little bit further out west than Colossae, on the coast um, of what is now modern-day Turkey, he probably heard him preaching in Ephesus when he was in the city on business. And he came back to the Colossians as a missionary to his own people. But more importantly to them than, uh, 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 than that is that, uh, that, that he's a native Colossian even, is that he's their pastor. Epaphras is the pastor of these people. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't lord Epaphras' leadership over them. He doesn't say, and now kiss the ring of Epaphras and roll out the red carpet and make sure that you tidy up his, his, his home before he gets there. And, no, Paul doesn't think like that. He says Epaphras is one of them. More than that, he's a servant of Christ Jesus for them. And even more than that, he's always struggling or wrestling in prayer for them. Why? Because Paul says that's the way that they may mature in the faith and be assured of God's will in their life. See, this is what we need to, this is the kind of Christian leadership that we need to look for in people. We don't need some domineering, bossy CEO type to boss people around, tell them to go and do this stuff, 
That's an American model of leadership. That may be an impressive uh, model of leadership in our culture today, but that's not what Paul praises in Epaphras. He praises that this man goes to the mat in prayer every day struggling to help his beloved congregation. He serves them. That's what it means to be a leader. That's what it means to be a pastor. Notice a couple things here. First, because Epaphras is their pastor, he's a fellow servant. He's one of them. He's not a slave driver. He's not standoffish. As Jesus told his disciples who were arguing over who's the most important, he says, I'll tell you who the most important is. The most important one is the one that puts themselves at the last of the line to let everybody go before them. See, that's what is commendable in Epaphras. And second, notice that Epaphras, like Paul and other Christian leaders, serves for a purpose. Not so Christians can kick back and be lazy and just relax and let Epaphras take care of everything. No, he's serving to help them take responsibility for their faith. Now this is in part why I'm glad to be a Baptist. Because I'm not a pope. I'm not a bishop. I'm not uh, uh, somebody that makes all the big important decisions and does all the work and everybody runs around like ants doing the bidding of the lead path. That's not a New Testament vision for Christian leadership. No, instead Epaphras is taking leadership and helping train Christians to be mature in the faith so they can go and be witnesses and teachers and servants themselves and be assured of the gospel that they've received. See, the job of the minister is to help the lay person to become ministers themselves in their own life. We do ordination in churches, but the the ordination that all Christians get is when they go into those baptismal waters and come up as new creatures and Christ, publicly saying, I follow Jesus, you were ordained by the Holy Spirit to go and be a minister of the Gospel. You don't need to wait for a seminary to accredit you. You don't have to wait for a a, a book deal to come through. You don't have to get a large following or come up with a new worship trend. You simply have to go and be a servant. And that's what Epaphras is training them to do. Because his serving them as a pastor means that they'll grow in spiritual maturity. And it means that they'll learn more about the Bible and they'll learn that the Bible is all about revealing Jesus so they can be more like Him, grow in His wisdom, and go out in His mission. And they can be confident in it all that just as God began a good work in them, as we read in Philippians 1.6, He'll bring it to completion up and until and through the day of Christ Jesus. Christians, this means that none of us in this room, not a single one of us, if we claim the name of Christ, can take a back seat in our Christian life. It makes no sense for Bible readers of any stripe, but it makes much less sense, I think, for a church like us, a Baptist church like us, that affirm Paul's word 
and affirm the, the word of Peter as we heard in our First Peter series. God has made all of us into a kingdom of priests. All of you are, could go out as father and mother so-and-so to the world. Because God has made all of us to be witnesses of the Gospel, to be ministers and servants of the Lord Jesus. So it makes no sense for us to just expect the clergy to do what everyone is called to do. The next verse here in verse 15 shows us exactly why not. Because on the one hand, we have Luke, who was a doctor, probably making pretty good money. I imagine they did pretty well back in the ancient day. But he's turned into a missionary and a, and a gospel writer. And as ever, all my friends that are in academia can tell you, writing books does not pay the bills. Being a missionary does not pay the bills. Being in medicine, I can pay the bills. But Luke has left that behind. He's matured in the faith. It's not about money or status. He'll go and get shipwrecked with Paul to bring Jesus to people. So he took maturity seriously in his Christian faith. He was assured of the Gospel. So we have this wonderful Luke who's composed so much of the New Testament. Not only Luke about the story of Jesus, but Acts, the story of Jesus' bride in the world. I mean, just one of the most brilliant men in early church history. But, on the other hand, Paul also mentions Demas, who eventually we read about in 2 Timothy 4, went on to abandon Paul. Because as Paul so heartbrokenly put it, he was in love with this present world and not Jesus' kingdom. Here are both men being commended in this historical moment. And a few years later, Luke is keeping on and Demas is more interested in the money he can make or the status he can hold. That is exactly why we need to continue to mature in our faith. You can come to church your whole life and at the end you can say, I put in a good 50 years at that church. I'm going to live out what I want to do from now on. I've, I've done my bit for God and, and, and for country and all that stuff. Now I'm just going to go and be my own person and not pay attention to any of that stuff anymore. Folks, that is a danger to our souls. Luke found his identity and life in Jesus and Demas did not. So people, or friends rather, as the people of God, we have to encourage one another, to find our identity and no one else or nothing else except Jesus. That's why we need to meet together every week. Because every week we need a reminder and sometimes a swift kick in the rear to remind us what our life is about. It's about God and it's about His redeeming us. It's not about us or our agenda. And we need each other to keep each other on course, to help each other mature, to help each other be confident in what we believe. So my plea as your pastor is this, give up on every hope you have in this life except for Jesus. Because only in Jesus will, you, will your present moment become an even more glorious future. And only in Him. Coming to church doesn't save you, I want to tell you. Being a taxpayer and a law abider doesn't save you. 
And even saying that Christianity is good and agreeing with a lot of it doesn't save you. Only Jesus, His person and His work, His faithfulness saves you. So be faithful to Him, church. And what that will look like for you in the end, well, we look at some other examples here. Paul's co-workers in verses 15-17. through 17. It can look like Nympha, who's a, this Christian leader, this woman who is using her home as the, as the church house, as, the, as a place where the congregation meets, taking on an administrative role, maybe of a few dozen people helping them. It'll look like loving and serving just a small group of people, encouraging them with gracious words, making your life and your home and your things open and available to them. That's what Christian life could look like. Or maybe it looks like Archippus, who is growing and training in the ministry that he's received in the Lord, to like Epaphras and Paul before him, to to go out and to love and serve and perhaps even teach and preach to people, to help them also grow strong in grace, be rooted in wisdom, and operate exclusively out of the love of Christ and for service to neighbors. Folks, that's the kind of ordinary Simple life that we're called to. Simple faithfulness. Come to church. Read your Bible. Pray. Fellowship. Visit those in their afflictions. Encourage one another. Give to the work of the Lord. That is the simple Christian life. It's that simple. What's the secret to happy Christian living? It's that. Being a, just being a faithful Christian. And you can start by coming to worship and serving the Lord. Folks, this is the life that we've been called to live in Christ. This is what our new humanity looks like that Paul's been talking about throughout his letter. Again, none of us are superheroes. We're not the most remarkable people. We're not the most important people. But we have simply been called to be faithful, to grow in grace in Jesus, and to grow in love and favor with one another. Paul doesn't call us to be heroes. He simply calls us to be faithful saints. Now after all, in verse 18, the last, the last verse in the book, Paul is still in chains. But no shackles can contain this truth. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, was born in human history to the Virgin Mary, suffered, crucified under Pontius Pilate, descended to the dead, was raised from the tomb on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Paul is chained to a wall, and that's the story he's going to keep on telling. Friends, in Christ, we are His holy Christian and apostolic church. In Christ Jesus, we participate in the communion of saints. In Christ Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins and baptized. In Christ Jesus, we are resurrected from our bodies of death to new bodies of eternal and everlasting life. So we may have prison chains of our own now. Maybe our prison chains are sickly frames. Maybe our prison chains are a terrible work situation. Maybe our prison chains are a, a, a family heartbreak that just... Ha- We feel like we can't even get out of bed in the morning sometimes. We may have the most discouraged hearts and the heaviest chains, 
But in Jesus Christ, Christian, our Creator, our Redeemer, and our King, we, uh, and with our fellow sufferers and prisoners, again, namely each other, we are emerging as a new humanity for the sake of the glory of God and the salvation of this world. So truly, and all that we have heard throughout the book of Colossians, may we be this kind of people of God. Let's pray. Father, as we close this letter for now, seal its truth deep in our hearts. Move by Your power and grace and love through our heads and our hearts and our hands that we may truly be Your people in this world. Following Jesus and Jesus alone, our Lord, our God, our Maker, and our King. For it's in His name that we ask all these things. Amen.